Father, we are glad for this time in your word and do ask that you would come and speak. Father, would you show us Jesus in these moments? Help us to understand more of your love for us and your will for our lives. In his perfect name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I don't know if you've read The Silver Chair, which is the sixth book of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. Uh, In the scene in that book where a young girl called Jill is stranded in a forest, she is alone and she is dying of thirst and she hears the sound of running water and she goes to it and finds a stream. But then, sitting beside the stream, she sees a lion. She is too afraid to come any closer, but she is too, afraid, too thirsty to run away. And then the lion speaks to her and says, If you are thirsty, you may drink. Lewis comments, The voice is not like a man's, but deeper, wilder, and stronger. A heavy golden voice with a Scottish accent. <laughs> it's just what Lewis says. I don't know what he's doing. The dialogue continues. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious and rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty that without noticing she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream now. The lion replied, there is no other stream. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other stream. And yes, I've been told, that's exactly the problem. One of the big problems with Christianity. It's so exclusive. It's so exclusive. Surely in a pluralistic society like our own, we should encourage all our citizens, whatever their religious beliefs, to view their faith as just one of many equally valid ways to navigate our world. Believe what you want to believe, of course. Believe what you feel compelled to believe, of course. But don't push your beliefs on other people. Live and let live. Let's all coexist. This view has, of course, reached bumper sticker popularity in our culture. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so plausible. In fact, to suggest anything else sounds narrow and divisive and extreme. 
But this morning, if you hold this view, I'd invite you to consider why you hold this view. Why do you hold this view? Because it seems to me that very often the reasoning behind this common sense of our day proves to be a little shaky. Let me give you two quick examples. First of all, some have argued with me that you shouldn't say uh, Jesus is the only way to God. You shouldn't be so exclusive because all religions are basically the same. All religions are basically the same. In the last 50 years, this view has even become a very commonplace. Since the first petals of the counterculture bloomed across Europe and the United States in the 1960s, it's become fashionable to say that all religions are equally beautiful. And all religions are equally true. Belief in God and a belief in the good, love, understanding, tolerance, combine, it is argued, to make the essential message of all religions the same. They all believe in God and they all believe in the good. The most popular metaphor for this view uh, that you've probably heard before portrays the great religions of the world as different paths up the same mountain. So it's possible to climb life's mountain from any side, but when the top is reached, all the trails converge. One philosopher says, differences in culture, history, geography, and collective temperament all make for diverse starting points. But beyond these differences, the same goal beckons. In other words, we're all heading in the same direction and we're all aiming for the same goal. So don't insist that your way is the way. All these religions are basically teaching the same thing. And in our day, that sounds reasonable. It sounds plausible. However, I was reading this week in a book by a man named Stephen Prothero. He's a professor of religion at Boston University, and he describes himself as religiously confused. That's the phrase he uses for himself. So he's not arguing from a particular faith perspective. He's just an an expert in religion. And yet he issues this very damning verdict. This is a lovely statement that all religions are basically the same. This is a lovely statement, but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. For more than a century, we have followed scholars and sages down into the rabbit hole into a fantasy world in which all gods are one. It is time we climbed out of the rabbit hole and back to reality. Now, why would Prothero, a man who has no particular faith conviction, issue such a damning and and dogmatic conclusion? Simply because the fact is there are significant and irreconcilable differences between the world's major religions. In reality, Prothero is saying that the view that all religions are basically the same actually reveals an unfortunate ignorance about what the world's major faiths actually teach. For example, who or what awaits us at the top of this mountain? Hindus believe in thousands of gods. Buddhists reject the notion of any personal God. Christians presumably expect to see Jesus when we get there. And what if we're not climbing a mountain at all? See, the illustration assumes that we're all making our way to a common destination from different starting points. But Christianity would argue that we're all making our way to different destinations from a common starting point. Or what about the ethical differences between the religions with real effects in the real world? Or, or even on the level of detail, take, for example, Jesus Christ himself. 
Christians, of course, insist that, that Jesus is God. Muslims equally insist that such a notion is, is blasphemous. Is Jesus God or, or isn't he? He can't be both God and not God at the same time. Either Christians are right and Muslims are wrong, or Muslims are right and Christians are wrong. But we both can't be right, and we're definitely not saying the same thing. Ironically, one thing that a Christian pastor and a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam is, sounds like the start of a bad joke. Doesn't it? <laughs> Ironically, one of the things we would all agree on One of the things that would unite us is that our religions are not basically the same. That there are significant and irreconcilable differences between each faith. It may be fashionable to say that all the world's world's religions are basically the same, but it's fashionably false. It's fashionably false. Okay, someone says, maybe they're not the same, but here's, here's a second example. You still shouldn't be so exclusive. You still shouldn't say that Jesus is the only way to God because it's really kind of arrogant to insist that your religion is the religion. Isn't it kind of arrogant to say that your way is the way? Who, who are you to say that your spiritual life is, is better, truer, richer, more rewarding than anyone else's? You have no right to claim that you know what's best for other people. Let them decide for themselves. In fact, it's probably a little worse than just arrogant. It's probably dangerous as well. Such dogmatism has led to untold strife and untold division and untold conflict. One writer says, If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will will never know peace. Popular metaphor that's often used for this view isn't paths up a mountain, but it's that of blind men who stumble upon an elephant. You heard this one before? One man grasps hold of the elephant's trunk and he says, "Oh yeah, this this animal. This animal is like it's like a snake." The other blind man holding on to the elephant's leg says, "What are you, what are you talking about? This animal is nothing like a snake. It's, it's more like a tree trunk." The third man says, nonsense, as he presses up against the elephant's side and says, this animal is not like a snake and it's not like a tree trunk, it's it's more like a boulder, it's more like a large rock. When the elephant is viewed as a whole, we can see that each man describes truth, but shouldn't presume that his truth invalidates the truth of another. Again, in our culture, our society, this sounds reasonable, it sounds plausible, until we realize The main problem with this objection is that it does the very thing it condemns. What do I mean by this? Well, there's an appearance, of course, of humility in the protestation that the truth is much larger, much greater than any of us can grasp, and so therefore none of us should claim to have absolute knowledge. However, this very complaint is a claim to absolute knowledge. How can you see that each blind man holds only part of the elephant unless you yourself claim to be able to see the entire elephant? You proclaim the world's religions blind and that you alone can see. You're doing the very same thing you say shouldn't be done. When you say to me, you shouldn't tell other people how to think and what to believe, you're telling me how to think and what I should believe. We're all in the same boat. This is why Tim Keller concludes, it's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions is right. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, if you say there's one true religion, 
then yes, you're saying that those who think there are many true religions are wrong. But if you say there are many true religions, you're saying that those who think there's just one true religion are wrong. In other words, we're making a very similar claim. Categorically, they are the same. Neither is more arrogant than the other. Both sides are saying, hey, the world would be better off if you thought like me. We're all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, just in different ways. So, the world's religions are not the same, and it's not arrogant to insist that your view is right. It sounds reasonable, of course, to say we shouldn't be exclusive about truth, that we shouldn't insist that Jesus is the only way to God, but very often the reasoning behind this view is riddled with ignorance or inconsistency. Where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? Well, really, with the responsibility for each of us to decide what it is that we'll believe. What is it that I'll believe? What is it that you will believe? Weighing the competing truth claims of the world's faith is, of course, not an easy thing to do, but we have no alternative but to try to do so. And with the moments that remain, I'd like to share with you a small part of why Christianity has won me over. The key verse in our text is really verse 6. You see it there? Jesus said to him, to the one who has a doubt, Jesus doesn't speak a word of rebuke, but a word of life, saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the exclusive nature of Christianity is helpful to point out. It doesn't come from Christians, but from Christ. He himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does he mean when he says, I am the way? It's an enigmatic phrase. English philosopher Michael Ramsden, who we've had preach here at McLean Press a couple of times, demonstrates that all religious worldviews are rooted in one of three ways. First of all, he says you'll get those religious worldviews that are uh, rooted, that the philosophers would say, epistemologically. This means they're, they're rooted in a system of thought. They're rooted in, in having the, the right kind of thinking. Secondly, he says, you'll get worldviews that are rooted existentially. That means in a mystical experience, in having the right feelings. Thirdly, you'll get those religious worldviews that are rooted pragmatically in a code of behavior and having a system for right uh, actions. Worldviews that are rooted in thinking, those first kinds say that God and the good can be reached by mastering certain ideas, that, that knowledge is the key to unlocking human flourishing. Worldviews rooted in that second category of feeling will say that God and the good can be discovered by having a spiritual or a mystical experience, a moment or moments in life that help define who you are and make sense of God. Worldviews rooted in that third category of, of, of actions or doing say that, that God can be realized by following a certain moral code, that if you live the right way, you will become all that you were intended to be. But the Christian faith is uniquely different. Uniquely different because it is not ultimately rooted in any of these three ways. Christianity is not ultimately rooted in a system of thought, even though, of course, there is nothing more intellectually profound to the believer than the personal work of Jesus. Secondly, Christianity is not rooted in a system of feeling. Of course, there is nothing more life-changing than meeting Jesus. 
Nor is Christianity primarily rooted in a system of doing, even though Jesus told us that we're to be known for our good deeds. No, ultimately and uniquely, unlike all the world's other religions, Christianity is rooted in the category of being. Now, what on earth does that mean? We say that Christianity is rooted in the category of being because the problem according to Christianity is not on the level of thinking or the level of feeling or even on the level of doing, but the problem is on the level of being. In other words, the problem is not something external to us, but something that is internal to us. The problem is not simply that we've had bad thoughts, bad experiences, and done some bad things. The problem is much deeper than that. The problem is not what we do. The problem is who we are. In Christian vocabulary, the problem is not that we sin, but that we are sinners. Michael Ramsden illustrates this reality with Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein. You remember the story? Victor Frankenstein is the doctor, not the monster. The the doctor who creates this grotesque and hideous monster cobbled together from dead bodies and animal parts. The monster is then brought to life and proves to be a surprisingly complex creature. There's one scene where the monster is talking to Frankenstein, the doctor, and says, God made you in his own image. He made you to be alluring and he made you to be beautiful. But you have fallen from that image and now evil runs to your core. And then you created me in your image. So Satan himself is a better emblem of my condition. Your divine design has been lost. And now there's something hellish in my soul and yours. Now the fascinating thing about this section of Frankenstein is that Mary Shelley was an atheist. Mary Shelley was an atheist, yet her novel echoes the truth of the Bible that we are not what we were supposed to be. Something has gone wrong with us at the very core of our beings. And isn't that our experience? Do you not need more than a guru to give you some profound thoughts? I need more than a mystic to give me a kind of experience. I need more than a moral exemplar who can just show me how to live a righteous life. I need someone who can address the depth of my depravity. And this is why Jesus came. In Jesus, God brings his very being to us. You see that in verse 10 where he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11 again, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In other words, in Christ we have the very being of God. God has been made flesh. And so as Christ goes to the cross, what does he do? He takes into his very being everything that was wrong with ours. He takes into his very being not just the sinful thoughts and its sinful experiences and sinful actions, but the very essence of sin itself. This is why the Bible says that Jesus became sin, though he had never sinned. Though he himself had never sinned, he became sin. And so Jesus doesn't come to us and say, I am the one who can give you the thoughts you need to make it to God. I'm the one who can give you the experiences you need to make it to God. I'm the one who can give you the actions you must follow in order to make it to God. No, he comes to us and he says, I am the way to God. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. Salvation, in other words, is found in the very person of Jesus. And this again is is unique to the world's religions. The system of Islam could exist without Muhammad. Now Muslims will of course insist that God gave his revelation to Muhammad. But if you ask them the logical question, okay, but could God have given that to somebody else? They'll They'll insist that he gave it to Muhammad, but theoretically, yes. It's same for Buddhism. They will accept that the revelation that the Buddha received could have been given to someone else. The founders of the other religions are not central to them and the system of their religion stands without them. Not so with Christianity. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to show the way. He came to be the way. And because he is the way, because salvation is found in his very person, No one can come to the Father except through him. Is Christianity exclusive? Yes. Yes. Christianity makes a very exclusive claim. The only path to salvation, the only path to forgiveness, the only way we can receive grace is through the very person of Jesus. But friends, as soon as we say it's exclusive, we need more than a footnote we need a, we need a caveat we need a, we need a clarification which is to say is it not also the most inclusive form of exclusivity what what, what do we mean by that we mean <laughs> yes salvation is found only in Christ but anyone can come to Christ see the other philosophies cause me a problem because if if we're saved by our right thinking I'm excluded. (laughs) If we're saved by the right experiences, I'm excluded. If we're saved by the right actions, I'm excluded. As inclusive as they sound, they exclude anyone who can't live up to that uh, code of behavior. The gospel and the gospel alone comes to us and requires nothing of us. And so, though it is exclusive in a sense, it is also very inclusive. Because it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you look like or the experiences that you've had or where you come from. It doesn't matter your guilt or your shame, your past or your brokenness. Anyone can come to Christ and find that he himself is the way. You become a Christian when you say, God, there's something wrong with me that I can't fix. And that's why Jesus died. He's taken the punishment my sin deserves. He's offered himself as the way of salvation. And so I'm coming to you, not with profound thoughts, not with powerful feelings, not with righteous deeds, but only through him. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus also said, our assurance of pardon this morning, The water I give becomes a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. The gospel is exclusive, but this morning it's offered to everyone. And if you reject this Jesus, the Bible warns that there is no other stream. The biblical response, come and drink. The water is beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we are glad for this time in your word and glad for the clarity with which it speaks. Um, You're the God who puts his cards on the table and in telling us so clearly that 
No one can come to the Father except through your Son. You've done just that. You've not left us second-guessing. You've not left us confused. You've been very clear about the exclusive nature of Christianity. And yet, in the Gospel, you've been very clear about the inclusive nature of Christianity. And Lord, that's good news for people who don't think, feel, or do the right things. And that's the kind of Gospel we need and the kind of stream that we can drink from. So we thank you for this, Jesus, in his perfect name. Amen.